Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome back to the podcast Spikey Mikey Brennis. Mike is the associate director of the Brady Johnson program in grand strategy and a lecturer in history at Yale University. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be back. And we're having you on the podcast today to talk about the F thirty five. The great. Can we actually? Can we just put a, a very like a, a very simple question to you, Mike, before we start any of the discussion? Sure. F thirty five, great weapon system or greatest weapon system <laughs> of the all best, time? Best of greatest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to get there that out go. of the way. There you go. <laughs> Case settled. So, Mike, why don't we just get into the basics? What is the F-35, or at the very least, what was it supposed to be? Yeah, so the F-35 is a, uh, what's called a joint strike fighter. Uh, it's a, a fighting jet that is uh, uh, dated to, or its origins lie within the early 1990s, when there was something called the Joint Strike Fighter Program that was created, and this, this is a sort of international acquisitions program, United States, United Kingdom, Norway uh, are involved in this, and NATO countries. And the idea was to replace the uh, F-16 and F-15 fighter jets um, from the early 1970s. So I think F-15 was 1970, F-16 was 1974. So the presumption here is that they're outdated and need modernized need to be modernized, need to be um, improved, uh, their technological capabilities, et cetera. And as there is, and we can get into this if you want, there's a competing process over amongst defense contractors over who's going to get the contract for this new joint strike fighter or this, this new fighter jet. Uh, and the competition goes to Boeing and Lockheed. They're the two finalists in 1997. Uh, and Lockheed is awarded the contract uh, in 2001. Uh, for its prototype, its X-35 prototype, it was called at that time. And the first uh, F-35 start rolling out in 2006. I'll be candid. I'm blown away by just how well our F-35s have performed in their earliest days. Obviously, we won't be able to stay perfect forever. But if our first month is any indication, this jet is going to be a workhorse. This was a $300 billion contract uh, for approximately 2,500 F-35s um, to be purchased over basically a 60-year time period, a 40-year, 40, 50-year time period. And what you see quickly materialize with the F-35 is that the plane has huge promises and can't deliver on it. So it's supposed to be innovative in its technology, uh, it has software problems. It has weight problems. Uh, it's supposed to be this light, uh, lean, lean, lean fighting machine, and it's not. And so cost overruns, as is endemic to the industry, to the defense industry, uh, cost overruns start accumulating. $300 billion for the program has now turned into a projected $1.7 trillion over the lifespan of the plane. 
And it's seen to be many, and I think rightfully so, as a boondoggle, like as another expensive, overwrought uh, plane, something that the Pentagon has spent too much money on, uh, taxpayers' dollars are wasted, and we're not getting on what we deliver. There's those who defend the F-35 obviously don't believe that, but the critics of it uh, have have had some sway in recent years because because of these reasons. What is the specific war fighting purpose of the F-35? That's a good question. Um, it's a <laughs> good question. A similar question. It's uh, changed. It seems like it's, it's changed, changed a bit because of evolved. some of the difficulties that it's had. Yeah. I mean, the, in the 90s, it was supposed to be, and I think this is true still, it's supposed to be updated for new methods of warfare. Like, like there's going to be a... Like, you know, if you look at, this is funny, if you look at Clinton's 1997 national security strategy document, the major threats to the United States and to the world are transnational, what he says. It's, it's terrorism above all. Um, and then it's like drug trafficking and organized crime. And there's some concerns about the Pacific and, and Eurasia. But uh, the idea is that this will be, this plane can be in use to, uh, for the United States in case there's another like large scale war, like the prospect of it. And then so great power competition, the concern over the Pacific since the Obama years has just made this paramount has just made this very conspicuous. And so as the quote unquote threats to us, the United States and its allies have evolved over the past 15 years, the purpose of the plane as kind of Derek is alluding to has, has also evolved and changed and it's going to keep evolving. It's going to, well, now it's, it's just sort of sacrosanct. We can't get rid of it because if, if we do, then we're going to be exposed. Uh, the Chinese, of course, when they, if, and when they invade Taiwan, or we're not going to be able to, to, to deal with them. So what is the, what is it actually imagining? Like going in and bombing "quote unquote" terrorist sites? Are, are people envisioning the F thirty five flying over Beijing? Like what what are we literally talking about here? I think anything and everything. I think that's that's initially was sort of the nineteen nineties purpose was like the maneuver the new maneuverability of the plane, its ability to like the thirty the F thirty five B. There's three types of of F thirty fives F thirty five A, B, and C. The F thirty five B can land horizontally on an aircraft carrier. Uh, it has this maneuverability that excites a lot of, a lot of these people who are backing the program, uh, and fighter jets, fighter pilots themselves. And it can take off vertically. It has a Mach 1.6 speed. It's, it's got all these bells and whistles. It has this very sophisticated radar system. It, it, the idea in the nineties, sure, would be to find root out terrorists and bomb them. Now I think the maneuverability of it and, and the speed of it and the ways in which it can outperform, uh, dominate in the words of some of the F-35 defenders, dominate the airspace is just going to be you know more relevant to, as we think about war with China, competition with Russia, et cetera. I want to push a little more on this because as you, as you say, the, the conceit of the plane when it was initially when the project was initially conceived, was th this is going to do everything. It's going to replace everything. It'll t take care of any mission, uh, you know, uh, strike at, strike missions, air-to-air uh, -air combat, the whole thing. But as 
as the plane has developed and it's turned out to be, for example, worse at dogfighting than the F-16 or, uh, you know, provably, you know, demonstrably not so great in some of these areas. It's sort of a jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. Um, it, it feels like the, 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 the emphasis has shifted to this tech aspect. And, and you hear a lot of people talk now about, uh, well, what if the F-35 was like the hub of our air defenses, but we still used all these older airframes that we were going to replace? We won't replace them anymore. We'll just have the F-35 up there to serve as like the information hub, and maybe we can have drones attached to it and, and uh, you know, all of this kind of fancy, fancy talk. Do you think that's just sort of coping with the, the, the disappointments of the manufacturing process, or is there anything to that? Yeah, I think, I think definitely there's something to that. I mean, the, I think some context is key. And, you know, I think we think of the military as a conservative organization or a conservative institution. And yeah, some of the officers are quite conservative and there's a conservative culture and so on and so forth. But the military as an, as an institution is quite progressive. It thinks of itself as being at the forefront of modernity. Uh, and that means like technological progress and technological fetishizing technological progress. Uh, and there's, so there's the symbiotic relationship between, you know, the rise of like silicon. I mean, there's there's scholarship on this, but the rise of Silicon Valley and the rise of the military and the rise of of sort of uh, progressive methods of warfare fighting, a uh, fighting war um, that coincide with the capabilities that the United States has now in terms of its technology. Like going back to like you know Billy Mitchell, and, you know, I'm a historian, so this is like my my. Achilles heel, like going back to like Billy Mitchell in, in World War One, like the idea of like the United States can bomb from the air, doesn't have to expose its ground forces, can minimize casualties, etc. Like the there's still that premise, that culture within acquisitions and within uh, the Air Force yeah, that the Air Force is like you know we can minimize death, we can minimize destruction to Americans. Yeah, and I mean, I I would even go so far as to say that it's baked into the Air Force's mission, that the only reason the Air Force is an independent branch of the military is because it theoretically has a strategic mission unique from the Army, which sends in soldiers, and unique from the Navy, which controls the seas. The Air Force is supposed to be able to send (laughs) planes to end wars. Uh, Unfortunately, I guess you could say that happened once with the atomic bomb. Um, or at least so, th- so they claim, but that, um, and I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of truth there, but I think that really does, um, make it so that they have to invest in planes like this, that, that if they don't, then the entire logic of their independence as a branch kind of falls apart. Exactly. And I think what's also important to hear about the F-35, that this was a plane that was developed for the major three branches of military like the navy the marines and the air force like this was a plane that was supposed to be all three like through the three branches that use right air power like that's that's what it was designed for and so this was going to be a plane that fetish again fetishized technology but uh built upon like this progressive idea that like which i think it is a progressive idea of sort of american primacy and primacy through the air uh and that culture uh, and that the ethos feeds the acquisition process and feeds how we think about what the F-35 can and, and hopefully in the minds of, of its defenders will do uh, in terms of protecting American security. 
There's a couple aspects of the production process that I want to ask you about. One of them you've already alluded to, so let's start with that. Is is the decision uh, instead of building bespoke aircraft to meet each service branch's needs, the decision was made to build this one airframe that would then be adapted into three, uh, you know, subunits. Um, would you say that turned out? To- it's kind of a loaded question. Would you say that turned out to be a mistake uh, to do it that way? And was it done with the idea of saving money or was it done with the idea of making this program too big to fail and getting buy-in from, uh, you know, the three, the three branches so that they couldn't kill it or nobody could, could come back and say, let's try something else later on. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's both in the sense that um, to the, to the earlier point, I think, you know, what, what the military wants to do is create like seamless integration or something like to use like corporate speak. Like that's, that's what it wants to do. Uh, it wants, and not just in a, within the American military, but the selling of F 35s to NATO countries, um, or to countries like Poland or Turkey, for instance, um, or we've sold F 35s to Poland. Like those ideas are, are the, the premise behind is that we have a sort of international uh, presence that F-35s, they're used in UK, they're used in the United States, they're used in Germany. We can have this integration amongst uh, tactics and we don't have to like, you know, train a bunch of different pilots or train a, different, a bunch of different engineers and pilots to operate and, and fix different types of planes that you have this one one plane that's being used across not just the U.S. branches of, of the military, but internationally. And it's this, again, f- fantastic, supposedly fantastic plane, and it's got all these technological uh, innovations, and it's it's for the foreseeable future, the best and the brightest, uh, or the, the, the most attractive plane. Let's have that be the underpinning of America, of American, like, you know, transatlantic power. Right. And I think that's, that's one thing. And then there's, yeah, as you said, the production part of this, uh, is uh, I, from my mind, and I think some people will just admit this outright, it's the deliberate strategy where Lockheed has learned from its mistakes in the past. It's learned from, uh, acquisitions, uh, the pro the process where, for instance, uh, and I point to this in the piece in my, in my Substack, where like the C5A plane, which was a cargo plane, was produced in a handful of states, um, or the F-22, which was a fighter jet that Lockheed had, and that was first commissioned in the in the or first produced in the nineties, and the plane started to roll out in two thousand four or five, I believe, and there was only like four years to the F-22 uh, because the plane had so many cost overruns, and that they they're supposed to be like 700 planes purchased in the United States. Pentagon only purchased like 178 before they canceling the plane because it costs like $138 million for one plane by the end of, of its life cycle. And the production of the plane wasn't in like 45 states and in Puerto Rico, like the F-35 is now. Um, it's not dispersed across the country. So, and it's not, you know, used in, in, uh, across, uh, across American military bases around the country, like the F-35 is. And I think that's, if you 
look at Lockheed, you look at its strategy with the F thirty five. That's certainly the case. And you look, you can go to Lockheed's website and look at all. You can click on a state and see how much economic impact and how many jobs are created by the F thirty five from the various contractors and subcontractors who are connected to the plane. And that's certainly prevented. There's been some scrutiny, but prevented uh, the government from taking or Congress from taking further action against the plane. One of the areas where there has been scrutiny, and I think Congress has, has scrutinized the plane, is uh, you know to go back to the idea that the F-35 is is going to replace every aircraft or almost every aircraft in the, the you know in the in the military and do every mission. There was a, a big controversy about this in terms of the A-10. I remember because the A-10 and involving the one branch of the military that is not relevant to the F-35 production, the, the Army. Uh, the Army loves the A-10 because it, it does close-air ground support, and it does it, by all accounts, quite well. The proposal was made to scrap the A-10 and, and you know, use the F-35 in that role. The F-35 doesn't seem to be all that well-suited to that role. And so the Army has complained about this. It's been a fight. Congress has sort of uh, stepped in to kind of save the A-10. What do you make of that as sort of a microcosm of, uh, of some of these other things that are going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one, on one level is just the sort of the nature of the defense industry right now, where like there's the defense industry has increasingly privatized and and allowed to privatize its production and its operations over the past 40 years. And so the defense industry has operated within a like, quote unquote illiberal context. And I think what you're seeing uh, with like the A-10 and, and the F-35 is, is just sort of like the, the way in which these companies have control over the acquisitions process and, and the oversight process in ways that they did not in, in previous decades. That's one thing I I would say, I think the other thing is that this becomes more, I, and I go back again. So the material, like the production, the, the jobs argument about this is like the jobs argument has more powerful now, I would say than it was that is creating jobs and keeping defense jobs is more powerful now than it was 40 years ago because of the ways in which we have framed job creation around the military in an age of austerity. And I think that, also, it just has more salience, I think. It's always had salience, but it has more salience over the past 40 years when Congress says we're going to cut off uh, or when, you know, there's threats to cut off or, or ideas of cutting off production of, of some component of some of the A-10 or the F-35, whatever it may be, not just eliminating the, uh, the program altogether. It, it triggers this sort of reflexive defense of jobs and it becomes much more difficult, you know, in this climate where manufacturing I mean manufacturing is on the rise in the United States but manufacturing is you know around uh, the, the industrial the industrial um, policy of the United States is around defense spending you know and, and, and creating jobs and creating jobs in the United States is, is just it's just a very attractive argument attractive thing to put forward politically and so I think this is something I raised in the piece is like, it's very hard to see critics of the military industrial complex or critics of the F-35 or the, or the A-35 or, or A-10, sorry, uh, to, to see like, okay, they're going to have some, some, some weight in this, in this context. I just don't think, you know, it's going to be a long, hard slog uh, and things are going to have to get worse before they get better um, is, is, is where I would 
is where that's where my take is where I'm at. I I, I want to talk a little more about your piece, and I we should say it's at your Substack, MichaelBrennis.substack.com. It's called Crash and Burn. Uh, folks should go check it out. Um, but you you do talk about, and you already alluded to it earlier in this interview, the C five uh, and sort as sort of a, a past example of some of the same things that have gone on with the F thirty five. One of the issues here, it seems to me, is in this privatize when you privatize the production of weaponry, and the military is to some degree dependent now on private firms for having anything to shoot at the other guys if there's a, you know, if there's a conflict or if it needs something. Uh, these companies have the federal government, you know, by the, uh, well, I won't say <laughs> what they have them by. We all know. Uh, it's a family podcast. Yes, we don't want right. to. Right. Children are listening. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of leverage um, that companies like Lockheed have to say, not just because of the way that we do industrial policy and the fact that there's, you know, job growth is is linked to these things. And it's really the only thing the federal government does uh, to create jobs anymore. But also like, hey, if we go out of business, you know, who's going to make your who's going to make the next generation of, of aircraft that doesn't work? That's become an even bigger problem. Uh, it seems to me because of the consolidation of the defense industry and the fact that there are far fewer, even than, you know, when the C5 yeah. was a problem, there are far fewer companies. So any one of them uh, has significantly more leverage to say, Hey, you know, we're, you have to support us. You can't, you know, you can't cancel this project. Uh, I know there's been a lot of, you know, people have, have asked this question openly, like there've been cost overruns and delays and why are we still paying these people? Well, it, I, I think to a large degree, it's because if Lockheed goes out of business, the Pentagon is in real trouble. Uh, so it's almost a welfare kind of program. But I, I can you maybe talk a little bit about these dynamics in, in terms of the control these companies have and what consolidation has done for that, that whole, whole issue? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, yeah, there's basically four big defense contractors, four big companies right now, Boeing, um, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and McDonnell Douglas. Those are the, kind of the big four. And at the end of the Cold War, when the United States is shifting away from <laughs> temporarily great power competition and thinking about downsizing and defense programs are being cut, you know, George H.W. Bush is, is at the helm of this, and then Clinton, to a certain extent, defense companies panic, and they start merging. Some have gone out of, some go out of business, so they, most of them merge. Like, this is where you get Lockheed Martin. Like, it's a combination of Lockheed and Martin Marietta, right? Um, and Boeing merging with subcontractors. And so, the idea of, like, too big to fail, as you're saying, like, this is, this is a problem. So, when when you, when you go to award a contract, who do you, who do you award it to? And like, this was the F-35, for instance, was a legacy program. It, it was going, it was going to last for a long time. And who are the, who are, who is bidding? It's Lockheed Martin, <laughs> Boeing. Yes. But then McDonnell Douglas. And those are the three left and, and, and Boeing and Boeing basically aligns with Lockheed in, in the final process. And like, there's, there's all sorts of subcontracting work. Uh, that's going into the F-35 that, that Boeing is a part of. And, and this is also the, the issue. It's not just like, well, if we cut the, if we get rid of the F-35, we're going to put Lockheed out of business, which might be the case. Um, but you will also take down all these various subcontractors who are, and, and Boeing 
like that are under the helm of or, or operating in cahoots or alongside uh, Lockheed and, and their mission. And so you have a whole political economy. And then, you know, we can start talking about like local governments and like local constituents and people who aren't even employed by these companies. That is people who are, who have small businesses in these defense communities, like, um, like Fort Worth, Texas, for instance, was the site of the largest, the largest production plant that they have 35, 17,000 employees in Fort Worth, uh, in, in production plant. This, like this production plant size, like it's over a mile long, it's like 300 football fields, you know, 17,000 employees that they are, there's a, there's another economy that built around that. Uh, and you know, yeah, this, I think there's, several hundred thousand jobs uh, in, in that are connected to the F-35. But if they're scattered across 45 uh, states and you have uh, other, other companies being affected uh, as much as it angers people, you know, companies like McDonnell Douglas or Boeing that if the Lockheed is getting the main contract for the F-35, they're all in it together, I think. Um, and I think they would also fear the same thing happening to them if, if they have their own programs, they have their own concerns that that their that their own the acquisitions process is going to going to negatively affect them. And so it's much harder in the age of like 1970s when you get like serious scrutiny of the defense industry because of Vietnam. That's also part of this too. It's much harder now in this age of great power competition. We're all concerned about China and Ukraine um, to see an alternative materializing, see a, a sort of anti-militarist or, or opposition to the military industrial complex materializing in the same way as um, combined with the, just the institutional structures of, of, of the military industrial complex and what they are now. Something else you talk about in the piece that I think is an important factor in the production of these weapons platforms is what it means for the United States globally. Um, and this is, I mean, some of it obviously is uh, selling these weapons overseas. You know, it's a whole, whole other kind of market for Lockheed and other defense contractors to, to, you know, make a lot of money off of, but there is a diplomatic component to this wherein if you buy U.S. weapons, you buy U.S. aircraft, you're beholden to the U.S. and to the, the contractors for maintenance, for parts, for, you know, uh, the munitions that work with those weapons platforms. There's a whole host of things that serves, I think, a, a somewhat of a diplomatic function because it binds these countries to the United States uh, on some level. It, it, it kind of forces them to um, toe the line, although we're seeing you know, with China's rise as a, as an arms maker, that's changing a little bit, but maybe you could talk a little bit, you know, in a little bit more detail about that aspect of, of this and, and what kind of presence do the major defense contractors, the Lockheed's, the Boeing's, et cetera, have in terms of kind of lobbying other countries to, to buy these weapon systems? Yeah. So there's, there's one element is, as you said, is there's that the United States is interested in, selling F-35s to uh, its NATO allies, but also right, countries that, like, there was an entertaining in selling F-35s to Turkey that could that could be important in this uh, global competition against uh, 
China and, and Russia. There's that element of it. And I think this is a sort of an extension of, of the global arms race escalating since the 1970s. Like there, like, I don't think we can see F the F-35 as a tool of international diplomacy or coercion without understanding how in the way, in the ways the United States has tried to win allies and, um, defeat enemies, uh, as they define them in the moment, uh, through arms sales. And this is a direct consequence of the fallout of Vietnam is like when it becomes hard to see that you're going to have a war that relies upon heavy manufacturing of ordnance again, right? Like we're not going to have another like Vietnam. Ukraine is seen it's somewhat different now, but it's not the same. Certainly not the same as Vietnam, but the ways in which arms sales become attractive and and a means for Lockheed and Boeing sell their products to find new markets and the regulations that, that allow that to happen or lack thereof in the seventies is, and into the eighties is where you see, I think the historical origins of this now, what has also happened though, because of the way that the production system or production capacities are, are, are operating is that, you know, parts, Defense companies rely upon international manufacturing. International manufacturing. They rely. They rely upon cheap labor. They rely, like every other company. Um, they rely upon cheap labor. They rely upon cheap production, uh, and they produce goods, uh, produce components for elements. Um, they, you know, they rely upon minerals from from right, that go into the production of the F thirty five from other countries. Um, and this is a way, sort of, we have like you know. I think like Greg Brew wrote about this recently in foreign affairs, like mineral diplomacy kind of thing. And like the ways in which the, the connection of uh, access to raw goods and access to, to uh, sites of cheap labor and uh, cheap production, that f- the globalization of the defense industry is since the 1970s is also playing a role here too. Uh, and therefore it's, it's not, situation where the countries are, you know, you're selling the F-35 to, to this country, but you're relying upon the labor in this country, you're relying upon the minerals in this country to, to get these materials. And so, you know, this, this, there needs to be much more attention to this. I think you're alluding to something that I, I, I there needs to be a greater attention. It's not just sort of F-35 impacting the United States and so on, but like way, the ways in which the, the, this production system, these supply chains, which are also part of the story here too, in terms of the rising cost of the F-35 are affecting things and, and shaping um, the ways in which these companies have greater influence you know, globally, not just the United States. It feels like, uh, I mean, you know, it's globalization in general, but it feels specifically uh, like a globalization of the phenomenon you talked about earlier, where you're sort of seeding production yeah. uh, in all these different states to try and, you know, again, make it too big to fail. Now you can say, and you mentioned the case of Turkey, which is a, a good case, it, it's, it wasn't just for Turkey to buy the F-35. Turkey was supposed to be involved in part of the production process, which supports the Turkish defense industry until they started buying mm-hmm. weapons from from the Russian devil, and we had to <laughs> we had to we had to pull that uh, line from them. But you know, it is it, it it seems like it would it sort of gives these companies additional leverage now to say not only are we you know the job creation engine not only are we the only way you're going to get weapons in the future but we're also playing this kind of fundamental role in establishing international relationships with for the united states by supporting the defense industries and and you know these politically sensitive jobs uh, in other countries 
No, ex- exactly. I, I, I don't, I wouldn't have much to add to that, which I, I think is, that's absolutely right. And I, again, I think the power of the military industrial complex is therefore grown, you know, just you know, not just the size of the military budget, which gets a lot of attention, right. And, and rightfully so, but the, the ways in which these companies have influence with, over the acquisitions process, uh, you know, from, from beginning to end in, in the ways in which they have international influence, you know, it's, it's, easy to sort of reflexively say dismantle the military industrial complex, but like, you know, what does that mean? Like when you're talking about an international system that like has constituents that extend upon or have grown uh, upon uh, based upon sort of American power and it's in the ways in which it, it, it has these inflections uh, across the world. I, you know, I don't have any good answers to that. I'm just saying like, you know, that's, that's just the reality of, of, of the way things are and something that needs to be talked about more. This in particular is very compelling to me because it really highlights the connections between American primacy and global capitalism. So, Mike, could you talk a little bit about how, what you see these types of global relationships? What do they really say about the nature of American power? Because it, it primarily seems to me that no one really thinks they're going to be used in war fighting, at least not on a scale like you know, the B-29 was produced to be used in war fighting at the end of World War II. What does this suggest about the nature of American power or the imbrications of global capitalism and American primacy? Oh, wow. Um, this is an easy question. It's a small question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, to, to me, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I'll put it in sort of contemporaneous debates or a discourse, just like, is neoliberalism dead, right? Like, this is like... <laughs> It's a stupid argument, I think, you know, like the ways in which we think about these companies um, having international influence to me um, and and the the agency that they have proves that, you know, neoliberalism is very much alive and well within the defense industry and and an international uh, acquisition system or a system that that has international consequences uh, in ways that uh, connects peoples in the global South to labor and into, into the production of, of the military industrial complex. And I think my view is that the power of capitalism and the dynamism of capitalism, right. Which is like what Marx allude, pointed to, right. That's what fascinated Marx when he first started writing about capitalism, I think it is just, it's powerful. And I, and I don't, and I don't see what I see happening now is sort of the militarism of, that's being unleashed through like great power competition like culturally is an extension of, of material power and the ways in which the United States is searching for material power to justify its great power competition, not to be sort of putting in like these reductionist terms or vulgar terms. But I think, you know, the, there's going to be for thinking about this in the next 10, 20 years and like semiconductors and all this stuff, you know, that, that, that arguments over, over semiconductor supply and access to, to markets and creating, new markets in the United States, like that's directly connected to, and the incentives that are going to go into creating like semiconductor plants in the United States, which are, which are neoliberal incentives, right? You know, that's, that's what's going to be encouraging to companies to invest in the United States, like lower taxes, right. Um, or tax forgiveness, things like that, subsidies. Um, this is going to mean that there's going, uh, in my view, uh, you're going to see, the growth of militarism connecting to the growth of, of capitalist production in the United States and abroad that, that ties into how the military industrial complex is, is going to thrive. And again, I, I think benefit a few over the many considering 
that there are not too many jobs in, in, in an overall economy of like 100 and whatever, 163 million people, but hundreds of thousands of jobs in, in, in an overall workforce, but still have all these, these sinews and connections in ways that it's hard to discern. And that that's not being, that's not the focal point of, of the discussion. Yeah. How has the war in Ukraine affected the military industrial complex recently? Because I, I mean, I've done some research and if you look at stock prices, it's pretty clear that it's been very beneficial. But as someone who really pays attention to that professionally, what do you think the effects are? I mean, CEOs on calls have been like, yeah, giddy. I mean, it's you know, with you know, on calls with shareholders, it seems like they're giddy about this war almost that it's going to, you know, uh, really jack some some revenue into the coffers there. Yeah, no, that's um there was an article in the New York Times, when was it? Right before the Christmas holiday, I think it was, um, about how the arms industry is bonanza for the military industrial complex, um, and went into great detail about like things that Derek was talking about, sort of the the, the giddiness of of the of the defense industry and and CEOs. But again, like. <laughs> The well, I'm, I'm I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but I'll say that, here's what I'll say: um, it's it's an evident f- fact that the the defense industry has benefited from the war in Ukraine. Like it's that's just as you said, you look at stock portfolios, look you look at the reaction that the defense industry has to the war. It's 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 been positive. They would say, of course, um, that they're just responding to a national security need, right? They're responding to the fact that the Ukrainians are putting up an extended fight against Russian aggression. Very true. And that the war is uh, a valiant war for, for to preserve uh, Ukraine's sovereignty. Also true. I think the issue then is when that leads to sort of uncritical reflection or lack of any reflection on what this means in terms of creating jobs that force people to be dependent upon javelin production, like in Arkansas and, uh, or in Alabama, for instance, which is, you know, the defense industry is searching for the complaint. Their, their constant complaint is that we need more skilled labor. We need more, more people who, who can satisfy this demand for more weapons for Ukraine and they don't have it. Um, and I think, what we might see then is them lobbying for government programs to create jobs that would put people in the defense industry, like subsidized education and things like that. Circa Cold War, like 1958 National Defense Education Act kind of thing, but in new ways. Uh, I don't know, again, to the point about neoliberalism thriving, I don't think that's actually going to be the case. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but I think in, in my view, what you see is sort of again that's two phenomena, which is that the defense industry is benefiting writ large for the most part. Not everyone, not every defense contractor is benefiting, but a lot of a lot of them are, and they're going to be creating jobs in ways that across the country and globally. Um, that when the war does end, when they and hopefully it will end soon. I don't want to see the war continue on, and hopefully it's a victory for Ukraine uh, in some way or a manifestation that what's going to happen is a perennial story of people being sent to the unemployment line for, for some time. And then there's going to be a drop in the defense budget. And then there's going to be more, a greater justification for interest in increasing the defense budget again, in the wake of these 
jobs being lost. Um, and without Ukraine, where do we go? Kind of a situation. Uh, and I think again, the, the history is any precedent here. The winners are going to be the big, like big companies and, and, and the most highly skilled labor. And the, the losers are going to be those who have least, the least amount of skills and least amount of influence. Yeah. And this is, I think just the sort of nature of the industry and where we're going from here, if that makes sense. I hope it does. Uh, well, I wonder if, I mean, you know, you can speak to this, but in addition, you know, there's, there's sort of the short term benefit in the arms that, that the U S is ha and, and this is happening in other countries too. And, and other countries, you know, defense industries are, are benefiting, but not, not just in terms of the arms that the U S is buying to either send to Ukraine or to replenish stockpiles of things that, that the U S is sending directly to Ukraine. There's sort of that short term benefit, which is, I think what you're seeing in uh, stock prices and these CEO calls about, you know, next year's revenue is going to be really great. Um, but there, it, it seems like this conflict is going to create a, or kind of reinforce maybe, um, a longer term, um, focus, let's say on great power wars and great power competition at a time when, uh, you know, you had the war on terror that, that kind of, I, I don't think scratched the Cold War itch or filled that gap. Uh, for a lot of these companies. And, and even that was starting to wind down. It's like, you know, sort of how do you justify uh, continuing this? It feels like Ukraine is is a, a great case in point for uh, the folks who want to build new aircraft carriers, who want to build new, you know, submarines, who want to build all these major weapons platforms. And, and um, even, I think, a lot of people who have been skeptical of the military budget and the defense industry over the last 20 years, let's say, are not don't seem so skeptical uh, anymore now that now that this conflict is going on. I, I don't know. You can kind of speak to that in a, in in more informed way. Yeah, that, I think that's totally right. I, I would say the way the what's going I, I think what's going to happen. I think is it's already happening. Um, it's supposed to like putting it in a future tense. It's already happening, which is that there, there's already a sixth generation. Uh, the F thirty five to go back to the F thirty five. The F thirty five is like a fifth generation fighter. There's already plans for a sixth a sixth generation fighter jet um, that has AI and that has ability to defend against cyber cyber warfare. And it has all these different bells and whistles that, that haven't been developed yet. And there's not even a contract for it yet. But to your point, like the, the reality of, of the war in Ukraine is like, this is going to lead to future planning and new, new acquisitions. Like how does the acquisitions process start? It starts by identifying a threat and identifying a need to respond to a threat. And I think that's, going to be the war in Ukraine is going to be the justification for a lot of uh, proposals by the defense industry for new weapons, for new contracts, but for new and innovative technologies and weapons that can't be fulfilled, right? This is like, this is the story. And again, it's not sort of like the military industrial complex is creating war or, or, or uh, fomenting war in some, some ways, but, they're benefiting it and they're enhancing it in, in, in ways that, that solidify their power. And then that, when that power exists, it becomes very hard to, to deconstruct. It becomes very hard to, to work against that because it's so connected materially in, 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 in many ways to, um, to our, to our lives, um, whether it be jobs or, or, or in, in terms of a culture, uh, uh, that surrounds it. Uh, yeah, I, I, that I, this is my big fear. Like that great power competition, 
is if it's our paradigm, it's 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 ultimately going to determine how our political economy works and how and that that gets us into like a new Cold War kind of political economy, which is what disturbs me. Um, and it, it ultimately, to put a fine point on this, limits alternatives for like you know um, to put it in simple terms like like a Green New Deal, like outside of a militarized context, like, like everything has to be justified as a budget line item. To, um, in in the defense, in in both domestic and foreign terms, as a bulwark against Chinese aggression or or, or against uh, Russia, and that's not a very good position to be in. I think um, it, it, overall, it's not a good position for the left. It's not certainly not, but it's also not good for building a peacetime economy or and for for thinking outside the context of war and and who it's going to benefit. Um, I yeah, I just. I'm sorry, you caught me at a at a pessimistic moment, but that's <laughs> pessimism the, that, is what we do that's on where this I'm at. show. That's where yeah. I'm at. But but hear me out. What what about this? North of Grumman brings you the single payer healthcare system. We give them a huge <laughs> contract to build to build a national single payer network, uh, and that's that's how we get it done. Actually, um, I, now I, I, think, I want. I think North of Grumman <laughs> is like a uh, subcontract. They, they have like. <laughs> They are involved in like the dispersion of, of, of welfare benefits in like some state. Um, of course, state they are. So I think that's one of their <laughs> subcontract businesses. So Good you know, Lord, who knows what happened. So yeah. um, I I did want to ask on a on a serious note what I think is is um, and this is you know sort of fairly new, but I wanted to get your uh, take on it. And and it is the first I think example of the phenomenon that you're talking about with. Um, you know, the, the return to great power, kind of everybody's comfort level, uh, which is a great power competition and, uh, large, uh, legacy or large weapon systems that would be used in a conflict like that. The B 21 Raider, uh, has just been unveiled. The oh, North yes. of Grumman B 21 Raider. Yes. Uh, by the Air Force, uh, the new strategic bomber that's supposed to replace the B one, the B two, the B fifty two, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, it's it it's it feels like none of the lessons of the F thirty five, well, none of the lessons that should have been learned uh, from the F thirty five have been learned here. It feels like you're doing the same. We're doing the same thing. Um, but I don't know. I don't. I don't know how closely you followed that unveiling or or what your impressions are. But I was curious as to to you know what you thought about the the B twenty one so far. Yeah, I. I... I saw that. I, I, you know, I was, I was not surprised. I mean, <laughs> yeah, again, this, this is, this is goes to my earlier point about, um, there, there needs to be, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, of like technological innovation demands, modernity demands like perfection on the battlefield. Right. I and mean, this is what the military is striving for is, um, if, if primacy is your framework and great power competition is the means of the way you get to primacy, um, then ultimately you need the most better, the baddest, baddest and baddest and best weapons ever. You know, and I think, um, that's, that's the sort of culture and intellectual underpinnings of this entire acquisition process. Like there, I, you know, I, I, again, I tend to think of things first happening in material terms and then, then moving on to sort of culture, but there is this culture that feeds into, um, of why we get the weapons we do. And, and, y- you know, listen, there's a whole like subculture of people, not subculture. It's a it's more than a subculture. It's not, it's a culture 
of people who like you Google like B21 or Google like F35 in YouTube and, and go into YouTube with videos like there's there's all these videos out there like this. Yeah. Look at what the F35 can do. Look at look at look at the ways it can dogfight. Look look at look at the maneuverability. Look look at all the advanced radar systems at. Look at look at all these things that it, that it can achieve. And the military is invested in this. And the United States government, Congress is invested in this too. You know, I, and this is I, I mean, I'm not not saying anything uh, relevant or, or, or you know um, revelatory here, but I think you know you. you you are in a position right now where for the foreseeable future, it seems to me um, that things are already in motion. They're going to be uh, furthered um, by, uh, by the, by the war in Ukraine and by concerns over Taiwan and China and B 21s and, you know, F 35s and like that's, that's our product of this. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what to comment on more than that other than just say, you know, I think it's, it's not surprising. This is sort of baked into the cake of the military and its legacies since the cold war. And again, the symbiotic relationship between technological production, modernity and, uh, supremacy and perfection on the battlefield of eliminating the prospect of American casualties and defeating, uh, defeating enemies with quick precision. And that's, we're going to try to get there as much as we can through the weapons that we think we can build. I don't know, Mike, I think we're almost there. Mike <laughs> Brennis, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone check out his Substack, michaelbrennis.substack.com. His last name is spelled B-R-E-N-E-S. Again, michaelbrennis.substack.com. Mike, thanks so much for joining us and we'll definitely have you back again very soon. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Derek. Appreciate it.